You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Well, he did it. Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, unleashing the first major land war on the European continent in more than 70 years. The West, led by President Biden and the United States, responded immediately, but challenges abound. Joining us now, Dan Baltz, chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Welcome back to First Look, Dan. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Sir, I mean, unlike previous Fridays, this is a Friday that is jam-packed with breaking news. And I'm going to stick with Ukraine um, uh, for the moment. We saw, or we have seen a strong statement uh, from President Biden yesterday in the East Room of the White House. How would you gauge how the administration has handled this crisis so far, especially now that it's gone from uh, imminent to an actual invasion? Uh, Jonathan, I, I would say a couple of things. I think, first of all, that the administration and the president have been quite clear uh, that if uh, the Russians were to invade Ukraine, as they now have now done, that they would come down with very stiff sanctions on on the Russians. Um, and yesterday, that was what happened. Uh, there was some preliminary sanctioning that took place earlier in the week, but the harder sanctions were invoked yesterday. I think that's the second element of this is that um, there was talk, there was suggestion by administration officials, including the president, in the run-up to the invasion, uh, that the sanctions, the threat of sanctions might deter uh, Vladimir Putin from taking the ultimate step. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. And now the question is, will these sanctions bite hard enough on the Russians that it will inflict the kind of pain that the president and, and the rest of the, uh, the Western alliance uh, believes they will do? But that will take some time, obviously. Mm -hmm. Dan, is it my impression, am I correct in thinking that um, the administration and the Western Alliance in terms of these sanctions um, are starting sort of way at the bottom in terms of their their impact? And as things escalate, they, the, the sanctions or the intensity of the sanctions will ratchet up as things ratchet up on the battlefield? Well, it's not clear about that. I think that, I mean, I think we're in a kind of a, you know, if you will, an asymmetrical situation, which is to say the Russian military is doing what Putin wants at this point. They are, they have invaded Ukraine. Uh, they are moving on Kiev. They are, they seem intent on deposing um, the government of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, and all of that is happening day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, literally. Um, they have, they have run into some resistance, which is not unexpected. Um, we don't know exactly how the fighting is going. There are always, you know, that we're in the fog of war, frankly, on that part of it. Um, so uh, in, in many ways, the Russians have an advantage at this point in that they can do what they are setting out to do, which is, which is frankly, to, to take over uh, Ukraine. The sanctions that the president and, and, and the other allied countries have imposed will take time. These, these do not have an instantaneous impact on the Russian economy. This is something that over time uh, could inflict significant damage and, and tremendously isolate Russia from the rest of the, the world's economy. Um, but, um, but that's not going to happen in the same time frame that the invasion and the military action is happening in Ukraine. Right. And that's something that's very important for people to understand that in our instantaneous culture, 
that that we have now, the, the actions that are being put in place, take a, they take time for there to be an, a, an impact. Dan, I have to get your, um, your thoughts on China. To my mind, it seems as though China uh, has been relatively mute in all of this. And on Morning Joe uh, today, uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass said, and I quote, Xi, meaning Xi Jinping, um, the president of China, greenlit this invasion um, and said that basically that um, President Xi is using Putin to advance what he wants to do with Taiwan. How closely should we be paying attention to what China is saying and not saying? Well, I think obviously very, very closely. I mean, the, the, the trip that uh, Putin made to uh, meet with uh, Xi Jinping before the invasion uh, was obviously significant and an attempt to show an alliance there against um, NATO and the West. Um, it was striking yesterday, however, when the president was asked about China and whether there are any discussions going on with China, um, that he declined to answer the question, which would suggest that there is something going on uh, on the part of the administration trying to reach out to China and trying to gauge where China might be on this. Um, obviously, the, you know, the question of, of, of Taiwan is a very important one, and whether Xi Jinping will take from what Putin is doing um, you know, an indication that he could, he could move in that direction. But the fact that the president was unwilling to say anything about China's role at this point, I think, was striking. Um, and in talking to somebody yesterday about it, their sense also was that something must be going on, but the question is what exactly might it be? And, and we, we really have no insight into that this morning. Dan, Russia is a nuclear power. How much does, uh, does that play into the response by the administration and the allies? Well, I, I think everyone was rattled by Putin's speech the other night in which he reminded the world, which nobody needed reminding, that Russia is a nuclear power, and then basically threatened, you know, the, the most dire consequences uh, if the West were to move against Russia. We don't know what's in his mind. He's obviously a very unpredictable person um, and, and a dangerous person, frankly. Um, and I had a conversation last week with someone who, um, who, who, who knows of Putin well, who thought that he was, uh, he seems more erratic, more defensive, more kind of back on his heels, uh, and therefore probably uh, it's more worrisome. So we don't know we don't know what's in his head. We don't know whether his intention is simply to stop uh, if they are successful in, in taking Ukraine, if that will, is where they'll stop or whether they will uh, go elsewhere into, into, the, into the Baltics or, or what. So um, we're, we're, in, we're in a very tense and difficult moment right now. Things are happening that we can't see. Uh, we, again, we, have, we obviously have very good intelligence about what's going on. Uh, in the Kremlin, uh, our, our pre-invasion intelligence turned out to be quite accurate. Um, but again, what exactly is in Putin's mind and what the goal beyond Ukraine might be, we don't know. And I'm glad you said that because I was just scribbling down before I forgot, uh, before I forget this question, but how concerned should we be that this conflict spirals beyond Ukraine? And I'm thinking about the NATO countries and how um, I'm thinking of Poland. I'm thinking of the Baltic countries. How concerned should we be that the Russian invasion of Ukraine 
is a prelude to uh, larger goals of Putin? Well, I, I, I think we have to think about it in, in two ways. One is simply the unpredictability of war. Um, we don't know, there's no way to predict uh, how, you know, in a sense, how straightforward this will all unfold or whether there will be accidents, an errant missile that ends up in Poland as opposed to Ukraine, um, some kind of unexpected shooting that takes place that, that prompts <clears throat> a, a different kind of reaction. That's, <clears throat> that's certainly one thing that, that we have to worry about. But your point is exactly right. Um, NATO is moving forces farther and farther east, which in Putin's mind is an, or, an enormous security threat. Um, NATO is doing this to help try to bolster Ukraine. Um, but how Putin sees that is a different question. And so we don't know, again, whether he will push farther west beyond Ukraine into the NATO countries. I mean, that would obviously turn turn this into a world war. Um, and, and certainly nobody wants to see that. And I think you have to question whether even Putin wants to see that. But um, in, in an environment like this, um, we don't know how things will unfold and, and, and the degree to which there is any predictability uh, about what he wants to do. The, the, the uh, foundation of that question that I just asked, asked you, Dan, uh, comes from the, uh, a column in the Washington Post in the op-ed the op section by Robert Kagan, uh, who is very smart and very brilliant uh, when it comes to, to all of this. So I encourage everyone to go to WashingtonPost.com slash opinions, Robert Kagan, to, fi to find the latest column. Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for the Washington Post, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Jennifer Rubin and E.J. Dion. Thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Good to be with nice. you, Jonathan, and good to hear Dan. Yeah, it's been a while since Dan's been on. So since you spoke up, EJ, I'm going to start with you. Actually, I was already going to start with you. Um, a decade <laughs> way, hello, ago. Jen. It's good to see you. <laughs> Go ahead. You too. A decade ago, EJ, uh, then Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney said at a debate that Russia was America's biggest geopolitical foe. Lots of people rained down criticism on him for saying that, saying that he was out of touch. But looking back, he was right, wasn't he? You know, we must communicate through some means that we're not aware of, because it happens that yesterday I was talking to a Republican pollster friend, uh, and I said, I'm going to pander to you for a second. Remember when Mitt Romney said uh, that Russia was the biggest threat and um, uh, the whole world came down on him and said, this is... Uh, old Cold War thinking, it makes no sense at all. Um, yeah, it does look better today. Now, obviously, in the context of the time he made the statement, we were far more worried about terrorism. Our eyes were turned uh, to the Middle East. Um, but I think that Putin has been a dangerous actor basically since he took power, whether you thought Mitt Romney's strategic assessment at the time was right uh, or not. Um, and he made very clear early on in his leadership that he never really accepted the post-Cold War 
uh, settlement, that he never accepted the dismembering of the old Soviet Union, which the rest of us might see as independence for people under Soviet subjugation, um, mm -hmm. as I would see it. Um, he never really accepted that. And so he's been pushing back against that for his whole presidency. There have been periods when he was willing to negotiate, when he tried to seem less bellicose. But what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is a playing out of Putin's worldview. Uh, and I think you really saw it in that uh, kind of deranged, if you will, certainly historically inaccurate speech he gave early in the morning, um, saying that Ukraine had no real independent existence outside of Russia. It was a creation uh, of Russia. Uh, and so he wants to bring Ukraine under Russian control, either directly or by installing a puppet uh, regime in Kiev. And we're going to find out uh, where that goes and how far he is going to be able to push. I just note uh, in closing, there are reports of the possibility of talks between mm -hmm. Putin uh, and the Ukrainian government right now. Uh, these are very preliminary reports. Um, I, it's going to be interesting to see, is that Putin responding to pressure uh, from the West, or is it, uh, I think, probably more likely uh, President Zelensky not wanting his country to be absolutely flattened and ready to have negotiations? We're going to see what that's about. Or Jennifer, how much of that, um, this um, talk of talks uh, in Minsk, Minsk between uh, Putin and the Zelensky government, how much of that it could be a delay tactic on the part of Putin to... Yeah. I mean, this guy is someone, as we have long known, is someone you know who can't be trusted and who's also incredibly ruthless. Uh, but your your view on what's happening in and in particularly the potential for talks between the two governments? I think this is clearly a uh, gambit by Putin, who will say, "Yeah." Um, we can have a, a nice peace uh, agreement as long as you completely surrender. Uh, and yeah. there have already been some indications that that's what he's up to. Uh, he went through a kabuki dance with the West um, to suggest he might be negotiating. At one point, he falsely claimed he was pulling back troops. That was all a dance. Uh, Putin has made up his mind. He made up his mind months ago to do this. He thinks of himself in grandiose historical terms. He is not weighing the cost-benefit analysis of this to the extent he considered Western action. I am sure he underestimated the degree of resolve. Um, and let's be honest, um, several administrations, both Democrat and Republican, utterly failed to address him. 2008, they marched into Georgia and the Bush administration was uh, caught, frankly, entirely off guard um, and really uh, Russia paid no consequence. 2014, they went into Crimea, mild sanctions, which frankly, this administration has said were totally insufficient. Um, of course, Donald Trump um, was a Putin lapdog and continues to provide propaganda for the Kremlin. We finally have a president who has been able to rally the West, able to put together some very powerful sanctions. And now the question is, will Donald Trump um, and his pal Putin succeed in upending the Western um, order and the international order, or by slow pressure, our own kind of um, a Python uh, maneuver to squeeze Russia and squeeze Russia, will Putin be facing really the destruction of his own regime and um, a crumbling economy, a destabilized population? 
I have mm. some hope on two counts. One, we saw a magnificent display of bravery in 37 cities, Russians taking to the street at risk of arrest. Uh, some 1,700 were carted away by the police state. And secondly, the enormous, enormous bravery of the Ukrainian people. Uh, they are going to bleed Russia in this. I see no realistic possibility that they're simply going to throw up their hands and run for the hills. Um, and we have to hope that the West is up to the task of assisting them by applying excruciating pressure and by going after their wealth, which is um, in large part held in Western capitals mm -hmm. and in Western bank accounts. Um, EJ, I have one more question uh, on Russia, but we all we have to talk about the other big breaking news today, a new Supreme Court justice nominee. But EJ, I'm going back to um, part of Jennifer's answer there in terms of talking about the Python-like um, sanctions. Is the gradual escalation of sanctions the right course of action? Why shouldn't the United States and the allies hit Putin and Russia with the economic equivalent of a two by four in the face? Well, I, you, you get the impression from what uh, the president said and from reporting that uh, the United States actually wanted to go even farther than these sanctions did. There is some resistance in parts of Europe uh, to going uh, all the way on the sanctions. I certainly think that you need to sanction all of these oligarchs who have made their money because of Vladimir Putin and try to put pressure on the elites around uh, Putin uh, to, uh, to have them go to him and say, my God, we could lose everything over the long run. Uh, there's also a debate over the SWIFT system, which is how money is exchanged around the world. Uh, again, from what the president said, he really wanted to shut the Russians out of that uh, some of the Europeans, apparently Germany and Italy, were reluctant to do that. Um, and uh, I think there are more sanctions to be had. But the problem with sanctions is they don't stop troops if uh, a leader is determined to keep pushing the fight, uh, as Putin is. And therefore, this really is a long-term uh, strategy to try to contain Putin. I think the heartening thing, as Jennifer suggested, is that there are signs of opposition in Russia, those brave people uh, who demonstrated. Um, there is great braveness going on uh, in Ukraine, but there's a degree of solidarity in the West uh, that Putin just did not count on. He assumed the West was weak. He assumed he could divide it. Uh, so far, despite some differences at the edges, that's not been the case. Um, and I think that's a tribute to Biden's success, certainly, but also uh, it's a tribute to a lot of realism on the part of Western powers who are facing up to the kind of leader Vladimir Putin really is. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about the, uh, the other big breaking news here stateside. Um, lots of uh, reporting out there. As of right now, it has not been announced, uh, but lots of reporting I've seen, including my own sources familiar, confirmed to me that President Biden uh, will announce Judge Katanji Brown Jackson as his nominee to the Supreme Court. She would be, um, she's the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court, and if confirmed, would be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Jennifer, just talk about the his this moment, how historic this is. 
It is really um, a tremendous moment. It's one of those moments um, when we will look back and say, gosh, how was it that we went for 250 years plus without ever having an African-American woman on the court? I think more importantly was the type of person that uh, President uh, Biden selected. First of all, it's very much in the mode of Justice Breyer. She was a clerk to Justice Breyer. Right. Um, she uh, had much of the same background. Um, she is uh, a left of center judge, if you will, um, but a very careful jurist, um, high intellect, um, went to Ivy League schools. Um, it's gonna be hard to argue that she's not immensely qualified for this role. Um, she was um, the recipient of uh, three Republican votes when she was confirmed for the DC circuit. So on one hand, he has gotten someone who is going to be hard, um, but obviously not impossible for Republicans to rail against, but could get some votes. On the other hand, he's gotten someone of superb intellect who can, I think, rally um, the minority uh, faction on the court, which right now is progressive, and begin to set the groundwork for a progressive resurgence, begin to weave together those dissents that someday one hopes, if you are of that persuasion, would become the majority opinion. Um, but it is a thrilling moment. Um, it is a, another step on the um, ever-ending uh, quest for a more perfect nation, for a more inclusive nation. And the notion that she is um, less qualified than any white male on that court right now is preposterous. Um, her experience, um, her intellect uh, stack up very favorably um, historically against all of these uh, justices. So I frankly look forward to the hearings. I usually dread them, but I look forward to her um, speaking and educating the public and uh, showing the United States um, just what a fine justice she will be. Right, the key word you used there, uh, Jennifer, preposterous to say that she is not qualified to be nominated or to sit on that bench. EJ, past Supreme Court nominations have been, let's just say, uh, chaotic, um, a bit crazy in terms of how, how they went through from the stealing of a Supreme Court seat right through to one nomination being held up because of you know late breaking FBI investigation and another one being rammed through four days before before an election. Are we likely to see those kinds of theatrics with this nomination? Well, I'm sure there are going to be some in the Republican Party who are going to put up an enormous resistance. Uh, let's just underscore something that Jennifer said. Um, Judge Jackson's pedigree qualifications are almost identical in terms of educational background and experience uh, to those of Chief Justice John Roberts, whom, as I recall, all Republicans voted for. So they're going to have a really hard time uh, making any sort of case on those grounds. She does have something he did not have, however. She worked as a public defender. Um, and among the ways we talk about diversity of experience on the court, obviously it's enormously important historically that finally there will be a black woman on the court, but also to have someone who saw the law from the side of a public defender uh, is extremely important. And I think it's also significant that on the list of highly qualified people uh, that President Biden was looking at, um, he chose, I think it's fair to say, the most progressive on the list. She's not some kind of radical. She is a protege 
of uh, uh, Justice uh, Breyer, uh, who everybody knows is no radical, but she is of a very firm view. And so I think what you're going to see is someone um, who will, as you suggested and Jennifer suggested, uh, help rally along with um, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, a really firm opposition to some of these 6-3 uh, decisions. She's not someone who's going to look constantly for compromises with points of view that uh, progressives shouldn't compromise with. Most interesting thing, three Republican votes for her when she was confirmed uh, to the circuit court. Um, Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, and Senator Graham. Um, it's going to be very interesting for them to answer the question, uh, if they voted for her then, why would they vote against her now? Now everybody can come up with all kinds of reasons and we'll see what they do. I guess I would be really surprised and disappointed if at least Senators Collins and Murkowski did not support her uh, and that should give her the majority she needs. Mm -hmm. You know, as, um, as, my, as black women relatives in my family uh, might say, they better, they meaning Republicans, better not fix their face to say anything that would denigrate um, the accomplishments, the intellect, um, the character of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson or any of the black women who could have been, who could have gotten the nod to be the Supreme Court nominee because what they would be doing is in trying to besmirch her character, they'd be showing the, the sort of how craven they are Jennifer Rubin, E.J. Dion, we are way out of time. Thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Always Great nice to be to with be you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.